The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renesola America, a Tier 1 solar module producer and LED light manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renesola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company has a proven track record of being a partner for project developers looking to maximize their return on investments. Call 415-852-7421 to find your local representative or head on over to their website at renesola.us. For the week of September 10th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello all, welcome to the show, a weekly clean tech digest where we talk about the week's energy, environment, clean tech news. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media, as usual in Washington, D.C. In this edition, we'll talk about Shell's second attempt to drill for oil in Arctic waters. Why is it the only company willing to take the risk, and will the Obama administration let it continue? Then, 10 years after Hurricane Katrina destroyed New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, We'll discuss how the disaster was used to raise awareness about environmental justice. Finally, we'll talk about a proposal to eliminate feed-in tariffs for solar in the UK, part of another round of subsidy cuts that has solar businesses there in turmoil. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are with me, ready to discuss. Catherine is in her offices in Washington, D.C. Those offices are 38 North Solutions, a public policy consulting firm. How are you? Back to reality now, huh? Yeah, absolutely. It's hard because my the, I'm not operating at, at a at the RPM that I need to operate, but I'm getting there. <laughs> I think perhaps overlooking Northeast DC isn't as nice as overlooking your lake while you podcast, huh? Yeah, that was pretty awesome. From New York City is Jigger Shah, the president of Generate Capital. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. The the um the buzz of September has slapped me right in the face, and now SPI is next week, and so I've uh, I've I've absolutely been too busy. If you're going to be at SPI, drop by the Green Tech Media booth and say hello. I'm going to be in meetings all day, every day there, but uh, hopefully I'll see you. Busy week for you, I'm sure too, Jigger. Yeah, SPI. When you get there, it's just back to back. It's 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 a fantastic conference. Everyone's there. Definitely one of my favorites. All right, let's talk Arctic drilling. After a disastrous attempt to explore for oil in Arctic waters off the coast of Alaska in 2012, Shell is back in the region yet again. Over the last few years, there's been a lot of soul-searching within the company about whether to drill there. But with a dramatically revised plan of attack and fresh approval from the Obama administration, Shell is going for round two. By some estimates, there's enough oil in Arctic waters to supply America for a decade. But Shell is pretty much the only oil major actively drilling in waters that far north. It's a region that brings incredible weather and equipment risks, and the company so far is the only one willing to take them on. Meanwhile, environmentalists are warning about the climate risks. While the Obama administration put the brakes on leasing in the Beaufort and Chukchi Seas after 2012, many were upset when the Interior Department granted conditional approval for drilling in May and final approval last month. There are so many layers to this story. There's business risk, there's political controversy, there's a philosophical debate over how important these so-called extreme oil reserves are for the future global economy. Um, let's try to break all these down. Jigger, I'll go first to you on this. 
Shell does believe in climate change at the highest levels. Their executives have come out and said, yes, we do believe that climate change exists. But at the same time, they're spending a billion dollars a year to try to access this very difficult to get oil. One former employee recently said that the company had convinced itself that renewables cannot grow fast enough to meet growing global demand for energy. What do you make of Shell spending billions, seven billion so far on this kind of extreme energy? Well, I do think that it, I mean, the CEO of Shell has been very clear that he doesn't believe that renewables can can rise to the occasion. And therefore, finding the energy to power the world is important. And I do actually genuinely believe that the oil industry and other industries like them do believe that same notion and that they believe that they're providing energy for the expansion of emerging markets and all those things. I just think that when you talk to folks at like IHS, Sarah, and other places, that's Cambridge Energy Research Associates, you know, they'll tell you that the break-even cost of for profitability for Shell in those in these areas in the Arctic has got to be over seventy dollars a barrel. Definitely, and their executives and with, have said the same thing. And so with oil where it is now, either Shell is telling all of us that oil will absolutely be back to 100 bucks, you can count on it, and we're actually betting $7 billion that way, or they're actually committing you know, corporate suicide. Yeah, the price does not seem, the current price does not seem to be weighing this down at all. Um, I reached out to Cindy Shogun from the Alaska Wilderness League, who talked me through a little bit of the kind of past politics of this, which is that um, the Obama administration inherited all these leases, which were sold, Shell bought them for $2.1 billion. And so first off, the administration would have to try to buy those back if they were going to keep Shell from doing it. All they could do is try to come up with stricter regs to um, to try to you know make it as safe as possible. Um, and it seems that Shell's really the only one who's been able to you know, to to put up the money and the seven billion dollars that it has done already. And but the administration, it just seems like it's not connecting the dots of, you know, what they're saying on climate versus what they're doing with these leases. Uh, and their their own advisors have said there's seventy five percent chance of a large spill as a result of this. That's right. Yes. That was an official report that I think came out last year or a couple of years ago. And we'll talk about the political piece here because this has uh, been extremely important as the um as Obama visited Alaska and talked openly about his plans to tackle climate change, and, and at the same time, he was offering these leases for offshore drilling. So environmentalists are, are of course, very upset here. Um, but on the business side, right? I, I mean, I, I can't comment on whether they're committing uh, suicide here, Jigger, but certainly they are the only ones touching this right now. Uh, Stat Oil, which has a lot of experience offshore drilling, Total, Exxon Mobil, none of them have stepped up on this, and so it makes you wonder exactly how risky this is. And but aren't they the aren't they the technology leader though? Don't they have more advanced technologies than those other companies? Well, I think they know this area the best because they started their original exploratory wells in 1991, and then it took them decades to come back to this. So they've they've got the equipment and they have some of the exploratory drilling experience to go back there, whereas some of these companies do not. So yes, they are a little bit further well, ahead on this. So the way the oil industry generally works is that they actually are all trying to share risk because they have binary risk outcomes, right? So when they get leases in the Gulf of Mexico or this type of thing, they 
what you'll find is most of those drilling operations are not 100% owned by Chevron or 100% owned by Exxon. It's like 58% owned by Exxon and then 42% owned by BP. And so, so it's really telling that the other oil companies have not actively it, um, shared the expense with Shell, even if Shell had all this technology um, and took the lead. Um, and so, it, you know, I do think this is actually a glaring thing that that the other oil companies are not as suicidal as Shell is. But I think also Chevron is doing something similar. I mean, Chevron has five major projects, all of which are, you know, billions of dollars over budget. I think they're like at $50 billion of capital that's outstanding on these super major fields that they're going after. And, um, and Chevron is actually in such big trouble that their stock price has gone down and people now believe that ExxonMobil could buy Chevron because Chevron took too many risks. And so... So I do think the oil industry is in this really weird place where to keep up with the reserve replacement ratio, which is what drives them, it's not their profits, it's actually replacing the amount of oil that they're pulling out of the ground every year is how they get judged. So to keep that number up there for Wall Street, they're increasingly doing stupider and stupider things um, because they just can't seem to convince Wall Street that Wall Street should focus on profits and not on reserve replacement ratio. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, Jigger, is how their shareholders are feeling about this, especially given the risk of development in that area. Well, I mean, I you know, the divestment movement's been interesting, you know, in the sense that it's divested from coal, which is sort of an easy thing to do. But I think now folks are looking at getting folks to divest from oil precisely because these risks are so bad. And you know, basically the bet that Shell CEO is making, but also other dyed-in-the-wool investors in the oil industry are making is that the oil prices will absolutely go up to 100 again. And when that happens, then all of these, you know, bets that, you know, all of these investors who bailed on the oil industry before will lose the upside in the stock. And so therefore, you know, you just have to be sufficiently patient. Um, but I actually think that this is, this is a misuse of resources. Right? What Shell's really good at is, yes, the technology, but the, what they're really good at is actually the politics, going through all the regulatory red tape, figuring out how to like, you know, get approvals for things. And, you know, frankly, we desperately need that in the geothermal space in the United States. We desperately need that in the natural gas um, heavy truck space. I mean, nobody's really implemented the T Boone Pickens plan yet. These are things that the sh that Shell, BP, Exxon, Chevron could do if they were to actually move their precious resources to the other side of the ledger. And actually, in my opinion, make a lot more money with a lot less risk. A billion dollars a year. That's such a big number when you consider that this oil might not hit the market for 15 years. A billion dollars a year, Jigger, given the risks in advanced biofuels, do you think that they are far less than what Shell is gambling with here? Well, even if you looked at geothermal, right, and Shell said, you know, we're going to buy up all of the existing geothermal in the United States, it could spend a billion. And then if you look at all of the reports that the US DOE has done on geothermal potential and how insatiable the appetite is right now in California for geothermal power and other sources of zero emission power with the clean power plan coming, you know, I absolutely think that they could invest a billion dollars a year. And then that's not even including international markets like Kenya, which is doing huge geothermal. And Shell and the oil companies are really good at subspace 
um, you know, geology, right? They know what things look like under the ground. That's what their expertise is. They're good at drilling and they're good at seven year efforts, right? I mean, given how long it takes them to bring these projects to market, you know, geothermal projects are perfect for them. I certainly don't think they should be doing biofuels. I think biofuels, you know, has not had a history of making people a lot of money. Yeah, and just because that's not their, their core skill. Yeah, I really think they these companies pride themselves at being engineering companies. And I do think there are a lot of technologies out there that need their engineering expertise, which are not wind and solar, which is the shocking thing to me is like how all these guys just decide to get into wind and solar. We don't need their engineering expertise in wind and solar. Those are relatively easy engineering projects. It's really like biomass projects, you know, anaerobic digester projects, geothermal projects. Those projects need complicated IE reports, independent engineering reports, et cetera, where their engineering expertise really can get, you know, they can get compensated for it. I want to address the political risk now that Catherine brought up. But firstly, I think it's helpful to talk about some of these other risks and just uh, cap this part of the discussion off. Let's remember what happened in 2012. Their containment dome failed. It sank. It came up completely crushed. I think they said it was crushed like a beer can. The company's drilling ship nearly ran aground. Um, out in the Chukchi Sea, one of the vessels came really dangerously close to an ice flow, uh, showing how quickly conditions can change there. That ship later suffered a fire and had to be towed back to land. Uh, finally, in December of 2012, one of its, shipped, one of its ships traveling south down to Portland, I believe, was snapped off its tow line. It was beached. The ship was completely ruined, and it was later sold to make scrap. Uh, and it took two years for this company to to completely revise its plan uh, in, in order to feel like they were comfortable drilling in the region again. And you know, their executives went through this very lengthy decision process over whether to pick this back up. And of course, the Interior Department had to do the same thing and push a lot of new guidelines, uh, including contractor guidelines, because it had a lot of contracting companies operating its vessels and equipment, and uh, it was fined for uh, numerous environmental problems and equipment failure problems. So this was like a complete mess for Shell. So the other risks, obviously, are economic risks, right? They've said they need $70 per barrel to make this work. Um, you've got the high regulatory risk. We don't know what's going to happen in the next administration. If Hillary Clinton is president, then she very well may not issue these leases. And she said so in social media recently as part of her campaign. Um, and, and that sort of brings us to, uh, and then of course there's the climate risk, which goes back to her decision or the next president's, uh, decision to issue further leases. Calculations show that we need to leave a third of known oil reserves in the ground, including most of what's in the Arctic in order to stabilize global temperatures by the middle of the century. So anyway, this, this political risk is, is really crucial too, because we just don't know what's going to happen in the next administration. And well, the, the more valuable, I mean, the more important political risk, though, is Alaska political risk. I mean, yes. the Alaskan people are used to getting a $1,000 check just for living there from the Alaskan Oil Wealth Fund, right? And that fund is dwindling every year because Prudhoe Bay is not spitting out as much oil as it used to be. And then the, the pipeline is underutilized. And so one of the challenges is that it's if you don't put enough oil in that pipeline, it doesn't flow by itself. You have to then start pumping, you know, and then that requires electricity consumption, et cetera, to pump oil down the pipeline. And so 
Alaska is facing this existential crisis around the way in which its economy is run for a long period of time and politics, what they are, you can imagine the Alaskan public officials and elected officials really want to keep, you know, the spigot open. Yeah, Yeah, there's the irony of over 70% of their revenues come from the energy sector. The pipeline's two-thirds empty, and this oil's not going to get there for a while. Um, And all of those funds, Jigger, that you're talking about feed back into the conservation movement as well. So it's all part of a very tight ecosystem in Alaska, and yet this is the state that is the most impacted by climate change. Yeah, flows on that pipeline, on the Trans-Alaska pipeline, are dropping 5% a year. And as you said, Catherine, two-thirds empty Incredible. Um, and Alaska funds 90% of its general fund with oil taxes. So the the state is getting hit hardest um, when compared to other oil producing states like North Dakota and Texas. Uh, but how is that risky? I'm trying to figure out what you mean by risk. Like, doesn't that mean that the state of Alaska is going to push this as hard as they can, despite resistance from uh, native tribes that are worried about the environmental impact and the, and the wildlife impact? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, Alaska is on the side of Shell, I think. Um, and so so what I'm saying is that it doesn't really matter necessarily if Hillary Clinton, you know, is making these promises, because if she wants a couple of votes for some other priority that she cares about, she'll give on this issue to buy those votes for, you know, from the Alaskan representatives, right? So, I mean, this is an easy thing for Hillary Clinton or anyone else who gets elected there to horse trade. Well, the KXL activists need something new to focus on, so you can bet they're turning to this. It seems they are. Definitely seen a lot more uh, activity in the press, rallies, and a lot more activity on social media. I think environmentalists have um, used Obama's words against him to try to pressure the Interior Department to drop these leases. Yeah, which I think, as Catherine pointed out, isn't going to happen. But I, but I do think the bigger challenge is, is that most of us believe very confidently that we can live without coal-powered electricity. I don't think that the same percentage of us actually believe that we can live without refined gasoline and diesel. And so I think until we actually create that sort of innovation and hope cycle around the fact that we can wean ourselves off of oil, people are going to continue to make the case that we have to make these increasingly risky bets. Including Shell and including President Obama, who basically said what you just said. All right, this is the point in the show where we get to talk about our supporter, our sponsor, Renesola America. Renesola is a tier one solar manufacturer, but did you also know that it's a lighting manufacturer? Renesola manufactures and distributes fully certified lighting products for the residential, commercial, and utility sectors. You can enhance your project with Renesola LED lighting solutions for all applications. Not only will you save on costs through bundled offerings, you'll save on time too. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses featuring its products and over 32 local sales reps across the U.S. To find their products, to talk to a rep, or to scope out their services, call 415-852-7421 or go to their website at renesola.us. Let's talk about Katrina now. In the early 1980s, Benjamin Chavis, then NAACP president and environmental champion, coined the phrase environmental justice. He described it as, quote, deliberate targeting of ethnic and minority communities for exposure to toxic and hazardous waste sites and facilities, coupled with the systematic exclusion of racial minorities in environmental policymaking, enforcement and remediation. 
In the late 90s, the term climate justice picked up in popularity within the environmental community, building on this earlier definition. And in 2005, when Hurricane Katrina decimated the Gulf Coast, showing the world how minority communities often suffered the worst from such catastrophes, the term climate justice took on a much deeper meaning. Since then, organizations like the NAACP, Sierra Club, and dozens of local groups have been working to help communities recover in a more environmentally just way, forge deeper alliances between traditionally white environmentalists and African Americans, and raise awareness about climate justice and national politics. Ten years after Katrina, we're going to chat about the legacy of the storm within the environmental movement. We did try to get a couple folks who've been working on the front lines of these issues, and we were unable to get schedules aligned. Um, so we're going to tackle the broader theme of environmental justice on a future show. Um, but for now, we didn't want to avoid talking about the decade anniversary of Katrina. Uh, just be aware of, that you can look out for more on this subject. Uh, but for now, we will talk about the anniversary. And, and Catherine, I'll turn to you. What do you, what do you think the most important legacy of Katrina will be in terms of how it's influenced diversity in the environmental movement. Did it have a big impact? Um, yes, I do. And in fact, you can see folks internationally looking to the way the communities um, affected by Katrina really got together and decided what they wanted to do and also brought in volunteers from all over who are willing to help. I talked to Daryl Malik Wiley, who is the environmental justice organizer for the Sierra Club down there. And they have more solar per capita than almost anywhere else. Um, they've got building yeah, the codes. the Lower Ninth Ward, right? Yeah, the Lower yeah. Ninth Ward. Um, had, the numbers are amazing. It's uh, They have over five times as many solar arrays per capita than the rest of the city, just in the no, lo, Lower Ninth Ward. Their solar permits issued in New Orleans were over 2,500. Um, and then, you know, like 10% of those are in the Lower Ninth Ward. So it's a big deal. And it's really a com communities that have gotten together and done this themselves. I mean, they've certainly had some help from others. But all of these folks have realized, like, if we want to do this right, and there's a Make It Right Foundation that um, Brad Pitt has funded to try to uh, make sure that everything, all these homes are lead platinum too, that they keep their energy costs down, they keep their water costs down, they make their homes stronger, they lower asthma, lower dental bills, um, they've raised school performance of these kids. Um, it's really astounding, the results of what this community has been able to do, and it really has resonated globally with how do communities that are impacted um, by catastrophe, how are they able to become resilient? And especially in a community that had so very little resource to begin with. They And uh, Jacqueline Patterson of the NAACP was hired in 2009 to really ramp up their environmental justice and climate justice efforts and has been extraordinarily active in the region. Um, getting NAACP working on these uh, sustainable community initiatives, rallying these local groups to not just call for better redevelopment, but to call for better local response resources uh, so that there aren't delays in responses to poorer communities like we saw after Katrina, to make leaders less indifferent about helping people out. And there's still a long way to go on this. Uh, I mean, when you look at, like, let's look at what Harley Barber did, right, in Mississippi. He used $600 million in Katrina funding that was designed to go to low-income housing to expand Mississippi port infrastructure. So there, there are definitely some glaring problems post-Katrina, but 
in all, I think it's given a voice to the environmental justice movement uh, within some of these major groups and the local groups that they um, perhaps didn't have in the national press before. Yeah, but I just look, you know, I I'm a huge fan of rewarding progress. And I'm happy to say that Katrina really created a lot of progress. But I do think some of the facts are pretty stark, right, which is that, you know, Entergy New Orleans went bankrupt. They spent over a billion dollars repairing um, all of the facilities, which is over $6,000 a resident. So they could have done way more to become a green city, just like other cities have, you know, have done um, after disasters. You know, they did um, the bare minimum on a fundamental energy level. So the the solar per capita really came in because Posigen and Brad Pitt and other people did a lot of work on the grassroots level, which is great. But, you know, had we really like gone to microgrids and done some of this smart infrastructure that you were, you know, like leading Catherine, et cetera, you know, down there, you could have seen a real utility 2.0 down there, given that they had to rebuild the whole thing from scratch. Instead, you see a utility 1.1 down there. I think the other piece of this is on the environmental justice side, you know, for all of this stuff around, you know, New Orleans becoming smaller and shrinking and all that stuff, you know, there's a lot of people who said, oh, that's, that's fundamentally not fair, et cetera. But we sort of accomplished it by sort of like market forces. So when you look at like the seventh ward, which is a black working class neighborhood, is only 60% back. The lower ninth ward, where the average resident was living on $16,000 a year before the hurricane, is only 36% of the size of what it was before. So there are entire communities that have really been driven out of New Orleans and haven't been invited back. The fundamental facts of the matter is, is that like that New Orleans is not a fundamentally better, more resilient place than it was in 2005. I mean, the levees are fine, yeah, but they're losing landmass like it's going out of style because the marshland that protects a lot of the landmass in Louisiana, you know, are is not being really protected like it should be. I mean, NASA did a uh, photograph before and after, and about 8.2 percent of all the pixels in their images have gone from land to water. Yeah, they're trying to build back the cypress swamp, certainly, um, because that's sort of their first line of defense in any storm. But one thing to go back to the policy piece um, that Daryl was pointing out to me is that the city council really is the regulatory body for rates there. And so they've had they've made big policy changes over the last 10 years. They opened up net energy metering where and there's really been a solar boom. He said there were between one and two companies there previously. Now there are 10 all over the states. They have a huge tax subsidy, 50 percent that is. Yeah that it's going to be going down, it's going to be out by 2018. But that has really created the solar boom. And Daryl said, look, we can do a lot more. We could, you know, put solar on the Superdome and the convention center and many, many more large commercial. And Entergy has certainly been pushing back on some of that. But it it really uh, does show that locally they've been able to put policies in place that have really opened up the market there. And let's remember that it's not just about putting up the solar panels as well. It is about rebuilding the wildlife infrastructure that makes these flooding incidents uh, less acute. Uh, And it also means thinking differently about how we site uh, landfills, uh, power plants, uh, chemical facilities, etc. And a recent study from the Environmental Justice and Health Alliance for Chemical Policy Reform found that African Americans live near a power plant or toxic facility Uh, at almost double the rate of the general U.S. population. And, of course, they're twice as likely. Children, uh, African-American children, are twice as likely to suffer from asthma. So the rebuilding 
on one side in Katrina has been extremely important, but you still have this toxic facility siting problem that disproportionately impacts people of color. And that is a problem that still we haven't come close to solving. And that yeah. exists in almost all of our cities. Absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and I don't, don't think that we can necessarily solve for all of these problems in one conversation. Um, and the environmental justice things are, you know, are absolutely real, including next to the, you know, the, the Capitol coal plant in Washington, D.C., and then in uh, South Chicago, where Edison Mission's coal plants were shut down. Um, and so, and they had, you know, sort of asthma and cancer rates that were three or four times higher than the average population. So all of that stuff, I think, is one piece of it. But I, I do think that the the bigger piece for me is just I'm trying to figure out what we're lacking today, right? I mean, I think that if this were to happen again in a Mississippi or in Alabama or even in Florida, the question is, what would they do? And my sense is their gut reaction is to rebuild the old stuff, the new stuff, exactly like the old stuff looked. And they're going to put a few more sensors in there and a few more things. But like, look, Entergy is building a gigantic natural gas plant right now you know, to power New Orleans. And, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it, natural gas infrastructure is very vulnerable to um, hurricanes. So it does, it's not, a, not resilient infrastructure, but they're doing it anyway because it's what they know. I do want to bring in an expert on this. I, I've said about all I, I want to say on this, and, and we have some folks on the ground that we've reached out to and that we really want to talk to, not just about Katrina, but about the broader environmental and climate justice movement, which is extremely important here. Um, so I think we'll, we'll uh, finish up now and go on to the UK, where there's some serious turmoil in the solar industry there. A few weeks ago, we talked about the government's decision to scrap scrap its marquee efficiency program and its desire to dramatically slow onshore wind development. Now the solar industry is looking at a nearly 90% cut to the feed-in tariff for rooftop solar in January. It was proposed by the government. We don't know exactly what the cut will be, but it's going to be very steep. That cut would bring the feed-in tariff from around 18 U.S. cents to around 3 cents, uh, one that solar businesses say will destroy tens of thousands of jobs. Average residential rates in the UK are around 14 cents and commercial rates are 15 cents. Amber Rudd, the Energy and Climate Change Secretary, argued this week that without cuts, the government would far exceed its spending cap on renewables. How do you view this one, Jigger? Uh, A needed reduction in spending or another move by the Tories to dismantle renewables? Well, you you can argue it both ways, right? So the 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 challenge in many of these European countries is that they actually, you know, just sort of use the ratepayer as an unlimited um, source of funds. And they don't really think about this from a budgeting standpoint, right? In the U.S., we actually allocate real money, but fixed money. Like in California, it was $3 billion for solar. In the New York Sun program, it's $1 billion. But in the U.K. and Germany and Spain, they're like, well, here's our guidelines but if you know we exceed the guidelines, well, then it's fine. So what, what's happened in the UK is they have a levy control framework. And the levy control framework you know, has something on the order of a couple hundred million pounds um, that they've raised to be able to pay for these types of programs. And they've totally destroyed that budget. And so the amount of solar that's been installed is so high that they've totally blown the budget. And now the question for the Tory government is, what do we do about that, right? Do we actually just cut back solar such that we don't continue to overspend that budget? 
Or do we actually create a thoughtful transition to an unsubsidized solar market? I think the UK, you know, as well as Germany for that matter and Spain, have chosen to just slash their incentive programs when what they should have done is created a more thoughtful transition. And but they should have thought about it two years earlier around how we get from you know where they were before to a, a more self um, you know funding uh, program. And from what I understand. Um all renewables are funded under the same framework, right? So that solar is sort of suffering from them over budgeting for all renewables. Yeah, but I think the the but the bigger thing about this, and you know, I obviously am happy to just beat up on the Tory government and saying that they really shouldn't put all these jobs at risk in the UK, and I agree with that. I mean, I do think that these jobs could be saved if they were more thoughtful about the way they're doing the transition. But at the same time, I do think that the the solar advocates, whether they're in the UK but also here in the US, have you know like have a responsibility to think about this transition and not be so blusterous all the time, um, like we're being, for instance, on the ITC extension in the U.S. Right? I just do think that sometimes we sort of, you know, Chris Cook, my old partner from Sun Edison, um, always had a great saying, which was "pigs get fed and hogs get slaughtered," and so at some point you become a hog from a pig. Well, the U.K. is going to end up looking like Canada used to look when they go to Paris. Well. Everyone is uh, worried about the UK's stance when they walk into Paris. I mean, they're, they're going to have gutted almost everything. I'm sort of curious about what this will do to push self-consumption in the residential sector. So, uh, you know, there have been a number of companies that are eyeing the European market, mostly Germany, but working their way into the UK. And if we have an incentive that's way below um, retail rates, perhaps that will encourage people to adopt more storage and uh, self-consume their solar electricity. Like, do you, do you think that's a real possibility if these feed-in tariffs go low enough below the residential rate? Well, it's true that the UK doesn't really have net metering, but because because the UK has um, really, you know, some of the most advanced um, grid regulation, you know, utility 2.0, um, their electricity rates are actually far more reasonable than they are in Germany. Um, and so, you know, I don't really see solar being cost-effective without any sort of subsidies um, for residential customers anytime soon. Maybe commercial, because commercial doesn't really need any net metering. Um, what I think you might see is a number of these combinations where people are being sold solar plus energy efficiency or solar plus heat, because you can imagine in the UK, you know, a heat solution is actually really important. Would you think uh, community solar would, would be able to survive? Yeah, well, the community solar business as a whole hasn't really been eviscerated in the in the new UK rules, and so they're they're still, you know, feigning interest in maintaining the UK um, community solar initiatives under the the new rules from the Tory government. Well, I think that uh, under everybody's projections, the solar industry is going to take a huge hit from this. It'll be a test to see how well the solar industry organizes there. Okay, Jigger, when you're at Solar Power International and you're sitting around trying to impress the person you're having a meeting with, what are you going to tell them that they don't know? Well, you know, the the interesting thing that I've been studying recently has been, you know, around the solar hot water business. Um, you know, as you guys may know, I've been investing in the solar hot water business for some time. And, um, you know, it, I was talking to the folks at the... Um, the subsidy program in California. So they've allocated $200 million almost of 
subsidies for the solar hot water industry. And going into the end of the ITC at the at the you know end of 2016, the number of people who are aggressively going after this money so tiny. And so I'm going to the solar hot water show, which I think is from noon till five on um, on Monday to see, you know, what what is going on. Because it just seems shocking to me that, you know, you don't have solar hot water folks from around Europe and other places really entering the California market to use that money up. But um, but it, it's, you know, it's not it's not going anywhere fast. Catherine, when you are trolling the halls of Capitol Hill and you bump into the Speaker of the House, what are you going to say that, that he doesn't know that uh, will impress him? Uh, <laughs> uh, the EPA clean power plan will not bring down the grid. Um, no. So, uh, one bit of news this week was the federal appeals court, uh, denied an effort by, um, about 15 states and West Virginia and some industry players that, to block, uh, the clean power plan from going, going into effect. Now it was not expected that this would win, that this challenge would win, but it was good news for EPA that it withstood this sort of first onslaught. Um, I've been doing a lot of meetings with EPA. They've been terrific because they certainly want people to understand what the clean power plan says and how they, you know, expect states to be able to carry, you know, put together plans that will, um, you know, will allow their electric generators to comply. So uh, they, you know, it sounds like states are already starting to put together their plans. States are getting together into regions and work trying to work together. I mean, this is moving forward. And uh, I'm interested in watching how it's all going to progress, because I actually think it will withstand many, many more attempts of lawsuits. Perhaps something that the speaker does know and is probably not happy about. Mine is uh, f- on a story written recently by our friend who was on the show, uh, SNL reporter uh, Taylor Kirkendall. He wrote a story on the incessant legal challenges from environmental groups over coal plants, coal mines, coal transportation, uh, pretty much anything related to coal. And there was one stat that stuck out at me, and that was that the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign files a new legal challenge every three days. That was incredible to me. At a time um, when market pressures are, are really hurting coal companies badly and forcing them into bankruptcy or restructuring, paying all these legal fees is definitely an added blow. You know, I, I think the poor investment decisions and natural gas prices are the main reason why coal companies are struggling, but that stat is certainly a telling one and shows how influential environmental groups have, have been in pushing coal aside and and creating headaches for these coal companies. Well, you're going to start seeing that for wind and solar utility scale projects as well. I mean, it's the Sierra Club is able to make these lawsuits because these large projects have to get so many permits to get approved. Um, And uh, so I think you're, you know, be careful what you wish for. The Energy Gang is sponsored by Renesola Americas. Find out more about Renesola's LEDs, solar panels, and other equipment at renesola.us. You can also go check them out at Solar Power International. Next week, we are off due to travel. We'll be back early the following week. You can get your Energy Gang fix at greentechmedia.com slash podcast, or go over to SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. And you can always suggest show topics. Um, send us an email at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Catherine, enjoy your weekend and your week next week. Thanks. You too. Have fun. I will not be at SPI, but have fun for me. Thank you. And Jigger, I will see you there. Yes. Lots of partying and frolicking to be done.
Work hard, play hard at SPI. That is the name <laughs> of the game there. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you soon. Thank you.